Welcome everyone to the latest I4CP Next Practices weekly uh, event. Uh, we hold these every Thursday uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. Great to be with you once again. Great to see so many returning names and faces as well as some new folks joining the call this week. If you haven't already done so, please use the chat, uh, introduce yourself there, let us know maybe what organization you're with, where you're joining from, and then keep the chat open. We'll be using that throughout the call today. That's your way of interacting with our guest. We are I4CP. We're the Institute for Corporate Productivity. We're a human capital research firm. We discover the people practices that truly drive high performance. We do this in several different ways, but one chief way is through our quantitative studies where we survey the HR community on a broad range of topics, always trying to tease out what high-performance companies are doing different than their low-performing counterparts. You see here our definition of high-performance for fairly standard business metrics, and we like to find both best practices and what we call next practices, those things that high-performing companies do more than low-performers, but that overall we don't see happening too often. So we're helping you to see around the curve. Um, We primarily are focused on our I4CP member organizations. You see here just a small sampling of the logos of some of these companies. They range from very large organizations like Amazon, Nike, 3M, Microsoft, Accenture, and others. Uh, Also a lot of smaller companies. We have a growing cohort of unicorn startup organizations. They also span across all different market industry verticals from healthcare to banking, to manufacturing, retail, high tech, you name it. Um, Special welcome to everyone on the call who's with an I4CP member organization. Great to have you with us. Uh, If you're not with a member organization but would like to learn more about what that entails, what the benefits are, uh, just reach out to me or anyone else at I4CP and we'd be happy to give you that information. My name is Tom Stone. I'm a senior research analyst here at I4CP, uh, and I have the pleasure most weeks of uh, co-hosting this event. This week, I'm joined by our chief research officer, Kevin Martin. Good morning, Kevin. Hello, Tom. Good to see you, as always. Good to be with you. You're going to be leading the conversation with our special guest, who we'll introduce in just a moment. Um, But a couple of other preliminaries here real quick. Um, As I've said, this is Next Practices Weekly. We meet every Thursday. You see some of the upcoming uh, events that we've got lined up. Uh, That next one actually should say February 22nd, I'm I'm now noticing, but the 22nd, the 29th, March 4th, we see you see a great lineup of of additional guests, all of whom, as is the case with our guest today, uh, are going to be speakers at our conference coming up. Uh, So more on that to come. We also have some sessions that are on uh, days of the week uh, and times, more importantly, a little bit different than 11 a.m. Eastern. And these are for your global counterparts, your global colleagues that maybe are in the APAC or EMEA regions. Um, we hold these once a month. Uh, so we'd encourage you to share this with uh, people at your organization or just other industry colleagues or maybe are located in Asia, Australia, uh, Europe, Middle East. Uh, and we cover a lot of the same HR topics that are critical uh, around the globe. One thing that we're gonna be focused on in our conversation today is of course AI, generative AI in particular. Um, Wanted to note, uh, we've done multiple studies on this over the years, but of course, 
over the past 18 months. It's been on everyone's mind. Our study, Is HR Already Behind in the AI Revolution, uh, was sort of a groundbreaking update to previous work we've done in this area. Um, the full member report is available to I4CP members, but there's also a brief that's available. We've also done some sessions here at Next Practices Weekly. Uh, if you go back in the archive, all of these sessions are available with slides, with recordings and notes available. Uh, so I'd encourage you to peruse the archive to learn more, as well as download either the full report or, or the public brief. Uh, and Zeta is putting the links to these and, and watch the chat. Uh, she'll, she'll be linking to various things throughout the call today. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to you, Kevin, to introduce today's special guest. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it very much. And hello to Zeta, as always, who's trying to hide in the background, but she's wonderful. And <laughs> uh, But I am yeah. super stoked. I see that Diane stepped out for a moment. She was getting coffee, by the way. She had told us that she was getting coffee brewed, so she'll be right back. But I'm super excited about this. Um, what I'm going to do, Tom, is just tee up a few things as, um, um, as well, shoot, Diane's back here. So I'll make sure that we, I told everyone, Diane, I said, don't worry, Diane's getting her coffee. She told us that she had some, exactly some coffee. Exactly what happened, brewing. I apologize. That's okay. You know, we all do that. And priorities come first. But uh, Diane, we're going to start just with your introduction. I think uh, most everyone in this call, if if they've never had the chance to meet you, they've certainly heard about you and we are super excited. Um, and if you can just share with people a little bit about your journey from HR and many of us on the call know you from your incredible stint as the CHRO at IBM to being on three company boards right now. Can you tell us about that journey and about you? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and welcome to everybody. I can see some people are in California like me and enjoying the better weather. <laughs> My condolences <laughs> to everyone else who's buried in snow. Um, so, uh, yeah, I joined IBM uh, in 2002 out of consulting. I'd been uh, running the employee pay practice at uh, Towers Watson. And um, I thought I was going into a corporate lifestyle, but ooh, no, it was more intense. Um, I was surrounded by incredibly bright people, and um, it was it was an it was an incredible journey actually going there. I joined as the head of compensation and benefits, um, so I sort of brought it. I came in with a thirty billion dollar portfolio that I had to manage, and. Um, was part of uh, IBM's lead, HR leadership team for um, for uh, quite a while. I was um, head of talent and head of HR for one of the one of the businesses, and um, and learned HR in the process because I'd only been in consulting before that. And then uh, in 2013, I became head of the uh, head of uh, HR. And it was an exciting time because it was a time to rebuild the culture into one of growth after years and years of productivity focus and um when we changed the portfolio and and it was it was it, as i said a really exciting time and for me you know my two best friends were ai and uh and design thinking and so i really relied on both of those to shape a different culture um which meant everything right leadership how we work um how we interact how we communicate um all of those things changed during that time and it was 
just just a really, really exciting time to be there. And of course, I was so lucky to have Watson to work with. I had first started working with AI um, when I was head of talent. Um, and that was about 10 years ago and uh, used it to infer skills because we were moving very quickly into um, upskilling and reskilling and understanding skills as sort of the, the fundamental um, denominator of HR. And so, um, so as I said, AI uh, was my friend, which is why I'm excited to, to be talking about it today. Um, and, and design thinking, which of course puts the user at the center and focuses on, um, you know, really drawing the, the wisdom of, of everyone as opposed to a top-down form of change. We, um, we're going to, so as Diane's teed up here, we're going to really have a great opportunity here to tap into her deep expertise, especially with AI and HR. And we're going to explore that in a moment. But Diane, you also are gracious enough to not only be a speaker at our upcoming conference, so I'm putting a plug in here for our conference, yeah. best conference in the planet. And you should find yourself, if you're at, if you're an HR leader, you need to be in Scottsdale at the end of March. And Diane, you're going to be talking about, just to tee it up, culture and human capital risk within, you know, at the board level, right? And your experience being a board director and a CHRO at the conference, you've also been gracious enough to give time to spend with our CHRO board the day before um, at a board meeting of our CHROs uh, in Scottsdale as well. Can you just quickly talk about what inspired you to want to make the transition when you retired from IBM into the corporate boardroom? Or what was it that lured you in so much? Just curious. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think as I experienced in the pandemic, um, the board suddenly got interested in a much more intense way in in issues that HR really is responsible for, right? Um, and, you know, it was the first time I'd ever heard board members ask questions like, you know, how are your people doing, you know? <laughs> um, so it was um, it was a bit of an eye opener for me. And I, I had, you know, over the course of when I was head of HR, experienced a number of things like that. Um, the first one was really hashtag me too. When that came along, I felt it was my responsibility to talk with them about what we were doing about it. Um, not that we had, you know, serious cases of any um, sexual harassment, but bullying was an issue. And um, and it was, you know, part of a culture that had grown up over many, many years. And we all know that what happens there, you've got people who grew up with that. And so they, they role model it back. Um, and of course, you know, the millennial generation was pushing back really hard and hashtag me too was a great example of how, you know, they really made it clear we're not going to work in this kind of organization. Um, and so, you know, I had worked with the employees to put together a new code of conduct around, um, you know, being really specific. And we, we had a code of conduct and it was it had served its, 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 itself very well, but you could have, you know, driven through the definitions with a truck, you know, I mean, there was like nothing, it wasn't, it wasn't really clear. So, um, you know, so to be able to talk to the board about, you know, here's, here's our definition of, you know, romantic relationships at work, here's our definition, you know, blah, 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 what you do in each instance and, and where you draw the line. And, they were really leaning in. I obviously hadn't had these discussions in their companies yet, um, but they were a little nervous about having these conversations, you know, and I realized 
this is key because it's killing companies. I mean, you'd seen all these, you know, terrible um, brand damage situations that clearly it affected the share price um, of some companies and we won't mention them here, but, you know, and, and other issues, of course, um, that that had, had come up earlier, you know, that had been about culture and how culture had um, gotten in the way of, uh, of, 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 a, of a brand or a reputation. So, um, so I was, you know, I was, I've, I'd had some experience with that, but I realized COVID was actually changing that even more. And, uh, and sure enough, that is what I've discovered is there is a huge interest in having um, people with an HR background who understand how to make change, who understand leadership, um, and, um, and who, you know, really um, are tuned to issues around human capital. Um, and, you know, there's just been, I mean, it just goes on and on, right? They're, they're picking, uh, you know, CEOs who um, turn out they have, you know, something in their closets and, you know, that kind of thing. And they're they're just constantly stumbling. I think, you know, obviously the latest example of Boeing was a culture issue, right? Um, and, and there was the board, you know, um, again, you know, not looking so smart about what had been going on in the company. And, and it, it's... Um, it's important that people on the board ask the right questions and um, and they realize that. So it, I think it's it's a very exciting time to be on boards. I love that. And I and I what what really resonates um, with me in particular, Diane, is what you said about the definition. You could drive a truck through that. And I think I think for so many companies and this is Tom, if we could trust transition, I want to show a couple of slides here. Diane hasn't seen these slides, by the way, so we're not throwing these out there just to, you know, uh, you know, catch you off guard or anything. This is really teeing up more about the conversation you'll lead um, at our conference. But what we have found is definitions around culture, definitions around productivity, the same thing. You could drive a truck through that in most boardrooms. And and so what we're seeing out there is this this demand among investors, all stakeholders, board directors, et cetera, for really narrow, tight definitions about what you mean. And here's what I want to share. So, um, and Zeta will put links. So if you're an I4CP member, then the images of the, these next two reports are going to be ones that you can access. This is a study we did last year, and it was uh, uh, well over 100 or about 100 uh, corporate board directors. We asked them about human capital data that they have access to, human capital data they find valuable that they don't have access to. And you can see where culture health ranks up top. But what I what I put little marks around here is what we find, and, and Diane, I'd love just a, 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 or your reaction to this. What we have found mostly when talking to corporate board directors is they might even get some of this data from the CHRO, but they're not getting this, they're not getting an integrated picture as to what it all means. So for instance, I circled like internal movement rate, reputation as an employer, employee net promoter score, and voluntary attrition of high performers. Our research shows that those are metrics that denote at some of the best organizations, their culture health. So that's, those are the leading indicators to that culture health metric that they're putting up to the board. But, the, but many CHROs don't paint that picture. They just might give them a data point in that regard. I'm just curious if you had a reaction to this. Yeah, no, these deep, are, these are very good. These are very good. Um, you know, one of the things that I did um, at IBM was every quarter in the board meeting, I would present, you know, is our, um, is our employee workforce 
better caliber this quarter than it was last quarter. And better caliber meant things like diversity, inclusion, engagement, skills, skills in the in the critical areas, um, it, turnover rate of our high performers, you know, all of those things that suggested that we were getting better and better. And we we also compared it to our competitors. So, you know, so yes, were we better than last quarter, but how are we doing versus our competitors? Um, are we better in blockchain? Are we, you know, all the sort of critical skills that we had? And that did make a difference because, you know, I think there was a tendency in the past to only present what you're really good at, you know, and and not show what, you know, what what you're still working on. And and it, it was a it was a project with the board that we really wanted to have the highest caliber workforce um, in all the areas that matter to us. And um, and 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 it was a journey, you know, and so I think that's important to, to share a journey with a board as opposed to just sort of showing off your good numbers which at the end of the day gets them kind of frustrated because it's like, well, what are you not showing me? <laughs> right. And I would think that that goes a long way to building the board's trust in the CHRO, you know, yeah. and which is absolutely essential. So just uh, Tom, the next slide here real quick. So I just want to, this is a report actually that's available to everyone. If you don't have our priorities and predictions report that we published, uh, you know, well over a month ago, this is available to everyone. But I just wanted to put another point of emphasis as to why we're so excited about having Diane speak at our conference. Look at what Columbia Business School came out with recently. This is back in January, where their own research says that culture is the biggest off-balance sheet asset for a company. And then, of course, the NACD has been trumpeting this for a long time. But, you know, they're talking about how it is a unifying force that drives business value. And then what I left off there was the sentence follows that says, and if you have an unhealthy culture, it's one of your biggest liabilities. And so again, this is so critical. And that's why we put forth the prediction that um, these are going to be now expected. You need to be tight, buttoned up, and you need to have an integrated story behind it. And then Tom, the last one, and Diane, this I think really tees us up well for where we're going to go with the AI piece. This is another study. This is based on data we captured from a, a just about 110 corporate board directors who are partner extraordinary women on boards back in Q4 of last year. And we were asking about AI in the boardroom. And what I'm showing right here is something that I think really, and Dan, I love your take on this because to me, this really exemplifies um, two things. One is many CHROs are unable to really tell an effective story. They might have data again, but they're not sharing the story effectively. And, um, and the CHRO can play a demonstrable role in helping the company shape its AI strategy. And so what we're seeing here on the data, what it's showing is if you pay attention or if you draw your attention just to the right-hand side, it, you know, not confident. You could see, we asked the board directors, what level of confidence do you have? And think about just one company you serve on. And so they thought about one private or public company. And they said, you know what, 42% said that we are not confident the company is effectively upskilling or reskilling its workers for the future. Only 9% were confident. And then the other one I circled, 41% were not confident that the company management was communicating a vision about how generative AI might affect the organization going forward versus only 16% confident. And again, I think it gets back to that storytelling and the, and, um, you know, the ability, especially for the first one to 
to share effective data and paint the picture. And I'm just wondering for your reaction just to this, Diane, before we get into your AI journey. Yeah, I think this is a good list. Um, I mean, I think unlike other forms of technology that perhaps have been a little out of out of the ordinary, Gen AI, you know, is something that everyone's been using for a long time, right? I mean, whether they're uh, a um, customer of um, of a company that has customer care that you know has uses yeah, Gen AI or whatever, so I think people are. People are not, it's not as foreign to them uh, as, you know, cloud computing or something like that. Um, and, and, and I do think people are quite used to fooling around with technology that seems accessible. And I think the big breakthrough was, was um, to be able to use it since October of 2022, when, um, when it became available, you know, to the public. And, um, and so, you know, that last one, encouraging employees to identify work tasks, you got to believe they've already done that, you know. Uh, the question is, did they do it, uh, you know, formally and tell people about it, or yes. are they just doing it to help them get their jobs done? Um, and so I think that one's a, an interesting one to get to. Encouragement is good um, because they know it's okay, but of course you've got to show them the guardrails that um, that you're using as a company and what's what's okay and what isn't okay. And I guess that belongs in the communicating the vision. Um, Oh, and not just the organization of the industry, but also, you know, what are the guardrails that we're going to use as a company to make sure that we maintain privacy and um, and confidentiality of, of data and um, avoid, you know, hacking and all those sorts of good things. Um, but I, I do think that that last one is so important because the the wisdom is in the crowd, right? It's it just not a top down wisdom about how to how to do that. I think that's great. And it, and it goes a long way to your point, too, about just overall, I would think it has a tremendous positive effect on decreasing the fear, uncertainty and doubt, right? That, that they're conjuring up themselves or they might be reading about of, well, geez, this is going to replace me, right? Or well, what's my future hold, et cetera. So, Diane. Yeah, no, know, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, 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 please, please. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think that there's um, there's a lot of fear about losing jobs and there's a lot of sort of silly comments like new job is going to be prompt engineer. Like we don't know how to yeah. do that ourselves. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so I think people are, you know, vastly overestimating some of the change that will happen. Um, you know, I can just say my experience with, with Gen AI is that it does free people up from um, the less interesting parts of their job, frankly. And um, and some people are fearful that they're not able to take on the new stuff, pattern finding and that sort of thing. And so that's the part that takes some work on the part of HR is to build their confidence, give them the training. Um, I'll give you an example that what we had with Gen AI was um, it enabled the people who had been working in, um, in the customer service area with the employee self-service, employee service area, to um, actually connect the dots that they hadn't ever spent time on that would alert the people who ran the centers of excellence around issues with their design. And um, that hadn't happened nearly to the extent you would have wanted to because they were in the here and now, you know, cutting, pasting, um, all that kind of thing to get stuff done. So um, so I do think there's, you know, there's, um, there's a higher bar that's being asked of people, but most people are capable of it. They just never really had the 
um, never really had the space and time to to do those more interesting parts of their jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, skills is, is clearly an area that you're very passionate about. And um, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Can you, Diane, also talk about, you know, you have shared before, and I just, I love these examples where you said, you know, like, for instance, it allowed us, and so many companies have listening strategies out there, but how did, how did AI or generative AI allow you to sense and respond better, either as an HR function or as a company? Yeah, you know, this is such an interesting topic, uh, Kevin. I just vlogged about it yesterday, actually, because I oh. saw an article, NBC, one of those articles, right, that was about, oh, gosh, corporate snooping. Um, you know, this is Aurelian, and, and it's appropriate that people are worried about it. But, you know, for years, companies have used... Um, you know, AI in some form, often, you know, through a, uh, through a third party um, to help them discern if there's any um, um, insider trading going on, if there's, um, if there's any um, uh, threats of violence um, in the workplace. These are things that are serious, right? And so to be able to have some form of alert is important. Okay, so we've got that. And then, you know, AI, of course, and Gen AI enables you to look at everything, video, text, you know, Slack, not just emails, which tended to be what they looked at before. Um, and, uh, and so there's this sense that um, it will stop people from, um, from working, you know, they'll hold back, right? And, um, and I, I agree, they will hold back if you don't, if you're not absolutely transparent about how you're using it. Um, and, and, you know, name identification, you would only use if there was the threat of workplace violence or, you know, some other crime, right? Um, and, and that would be, you know, that you'd need some form of governance to make sure that it's not just a whimsical idea. Let's just go see who that person is. And it could be something bad, but not, you know, not something really bad, like, like workplace violence. Um, so, um, so to have governance and even involve your employees in the governance, do it, you know, because that gives them confidence that it's not, you know, some some Orwellian, you know, um, uh, conspiracy that 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 is out there. But um, but certainly, you know, it does enable you um, to pick up the um, any patterns of negativity. And I'll give you an example. Yesterday, um, who was it? Um, Oracle? No, one. I've forgotten one of the software companies. Um, had decided to move one of their conferences to um, to Florida, and 500 of their employees went out and protested it. Um, well, that's you know that's not something you really want to have you know crashing the headlines if your consumers see that and uh, and um, and it it was um, maybe something they could have been preemptive about if they'd known that there was this negativity around that decision. Um, they could have done something to talk with their employees about it, um, explain why, um, hear, hear their side, you know, all this kind of thing, right? Um, but, you know, this is, is, is causing companies to be flat-footed, right, when they don't know that there's something really negative going on. And I think in the world before social media, that was okay. But with the world of social media, it gets oxygen. And you're the one on the defense as a company. And so, you know, so there is a need to understand it. But again, not getting to the individual, 
Um, my first experience with it, with it was actually in um, 2014. I was getting off a plane. I was new in my job as CHRO. And I had about three messages from my 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 uh, uh, assistant. And she said, you know, go on this site. And I thought, okay, well, I'm now off the plane. So I, I went on the site. And sure enough, there was a manifesto. And it was a manifesto signed by hundreds of IBM employees. Um, and they were angry and they were you know, just really like really angry. And um, the, the reason was that um, apparently IBM had said, we're no longer going to reimburse for Uber. And so I read all their comments and I'm like, oh my God, how did this happen? Um, people weren't able to, you know, go see their clients, you know, all kinds of things, right? And so I called up my um, my head of uh, operations and I said, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, and he said, I don't know. So he did, he, he quickly looked and came back and said, you know, one of my employees saw that there was somebody whose luggage was stolen in Rome and, you know, the best of intentions went on the site and said, we're no longer reimbursing for Uber. Uh, you know, 2013, 2014, you know, I guess this person thought that was okay. But um, then, of course, it had created this uproar. So I went on the site and I said, hi, I'm your head of HR and I've read all your comments and they're really thoughtful. Um, and, uh, you know, I've looked into it and it was a case of someone having their luggage stolen, but on, you know, on, um, balance, of course, it will be important for all of us to be able to re be reimbursed. And so I'm going to reverse the policy and it's just been changed. And if you go on the site, you'll see that. Well, oh my goodness. I mean, the positive feedback that I got from that was enormous. Um, but the next day, you know, the headlines in Yahoo Finance and Business Insider were all about, how IBM had responded within 24 hours to a concern that employees had. It wasn't that amazing, but the headlines could have been <laughs> what an idiot IBM was for doing this. Right. So, you know, it's that fine line, right? You, you, you've got to be on top of these things. Now, when I think about sentiment analysis, I think about it as high notes and low notes. Where are the high notes? That's great. Where are the low notes? And the low notes, you've got to go and look to see, you know, ask your head of HR in that area or your HR business partner in that area to say, is there something going on that we need to know about? And then they can talk to people and find out, but not names, right? Just is there an issue? In that particular case, there was a post, right, that had gathered a lot of attention. Um, and so, you know, it's a little different, but but I, I, it does need to be anonymous, and um, and it should just be to give you a sense of what's going on. But it can avoid some, you know, some serious issues. You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the high notes and low notes, Diane, because it resonates a lot. I I've heard from several corporate board members that I've had the chance to talk with about they collectively believe that companies are pretty weak at really hearing to your point, but they they would say something like maybe the 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 strong signals versus the weak signals, right? Or the high notes versus the low notes. How would you, what advice would you give to the people on this call here if you want to be a company that has much that's much more attuned to the sentiment that's taking that that's happening externally internally how are you going to what would you communicate out to the workforce so as to be transparent but also at the same time not create fear in people of this utopian society or whatever it might be Can, 
Yeah, well, it's really important to have a set of guidelines to show people what your guardrails are. Um, I, as I said before, you know, this this concept of anonymous is really important. And I think people are very suspicious of the term anonymous for good reason. You know, does that mean that you can still find me by my employee number? You know, things like that. Um, and so you need to show how there is absolutely no way there'll be a large enough N that you would not be able to find that person. Um, but you would be able to find a trend or a sentiment that is that is held by a large number of people. And whatever that N is, um, that's important to share. Is it 50? Is it 100? Um, but it certainly isn't isn't less than 50. Right. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, so I think that's important. And then, as I said before, some form of governance, if you do need to go down to the individual level, who are the people who are going to make that decision? Um, and are you going to have, you know, employees involved in it? Because that's another way to do it. Um, you might have, for example, a council of managers who um, have been, you know, the elected by their, not elected, but named by their employees as, as a fabulous manager. We had that at IBM. Um, and so they advised us on a number of things. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, you know, draw more confidence that, um, it's somebody who, you know, we can trust, right, that we know. And um, and so that's the sort of thing. And, and it could be governance in every city and every country, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be just in corporate. Um, but it is important to um, to share, you know, be transparent about how you're using it, where it comes from, what you look at um, so that they feel more comfortable. And and look, if you told an employee that if someone, you know, threatened to put, you know, to 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 shoot someone in their in their workplace, you sure they will sure agree that, you know, they'd like you to know about that ahead of time. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so they, they have an interest as well. Absolutely. They, um, you know, I love the example you've shared before getting back to like AI and its benefits to the business. Can you share with folks a little bit about how. You've used it in the past, Diane, to help managers make better decisions, um, especially in this day and age when we've got so much emphasis on productivity, on efficiency, you name it. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, uh, we used it in a number of ways because we really felt like our managers were overburdened. Um, and, uh, you know, there was just more and more being asked of managers in, in a world where you need to be empathetic and understand them and all sorts of things that maybe weren't as important in the old days, but certainly are so important now. Um, and um, and so, and the other thing was we'd moved to self-service like everybody else, and it was incredibly burdensome because it was very process-centric and it wasn't helping them with their problem, right? Um, so, so those were kind of the two things, uh, an overload, but also, you know, um, self-service that wasn't particularly um, sensitive to, you know, the issues that they were dealing with, but more focused on the function itself and what they could do for you. Um, so, so we did use AI, you know, to help us, um, pull from a number of different, um, different, uh, databases to help solve problems. Right. Um, and so for example, um, a manager might say, you know, I, um, I want to terminate this individual, separate this individual from the company. What do I need to do next? Okay, so before you, you know, have to go to a million websites and, you know, what do you do around their, you know, communication? What do you do around their benefits? Blah blah blah. 
Um, and, um, and, 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 and you had an HR partner who, who would be there for you, um, uh, but wouldn't necessarily be an expert around disability benefits or anything like that. So we were able to pull that together, um, in a way that would be helpful. Another one would be, you know, I want to promote Kevin, you know, um, uh, what do I do? Well, before it was like, well, here's the link you have to go to da, da, da. Um, and instead it would be like, do you want me to do it for you? You know, here's the range, da, da, da. Or I want to transfer Kevin. Um, and before it was very complicated. Now it's like, would you like us to do it for you? So um, so it was very quick. It could be done in the middle of the night, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so that was helpful. The other thing that we did was we were, as I mentioned before, really making skills the cornerstone of everything we did. Um, and so for compensation, we wanted to really make sure we were, um, rewarding people who had the skills of the future. And so we built, a, a, using AI, we built a compensation advisor for our managers so they would get their budget and the and it would tell them, you know, how that was recommended that they spend their salary increase budget. And so it would take into account not just the employee's performance and their position versus, you know, the market, but also the, the turnover rate of um, people with those skills. Um, in uh, in the company and the demand for those skills in the market, um, so scraping from from job sites of of competitors, um, but um, and and you know and the demand for um, for those skills in the future using our workforce plan, and um, and so even though the person might have been a high performer or low in position or low in market position. If there was, you know, a zero percent turnover rate and a uh, very low demand in the market and a very low demand looking out into the future, they wouldn't be recommended an increase. Well, in the old days, it was really hard for a manager to have that conversation because, hey, you know, you're a high performer, um, but you, you know, uh, but you haven't built new skills, um, and you know, let's make sure we do that next year. Now they had all this data that they could share and say, you're not getting increase. Here's why we had these conversations about building your skills and it didn't happen this year and blah, 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 blah. And here's what's going on if you, you know, continue not building out those skills. So it, it was, um, it turned out to be, you know, a very good advisor for the manager, but, you know, the manager didn't always take the recommendation. Um, you know, in, in some cases they just went ahead and did what they wanted to do. But over the years that's improved. And I think I saw Nickel, my successor say that, 80% of the managers now take the recommendation. I can't remember, it was 60 or 80, but anyway, um, that's that. it was high, a lot higher than, than when we started. I love that example. Tom, I'm, I am seeing some stuff happening in chat, but I am not paying attention because I'm listening to yeah. Diane and looking at her. Is there anything going on in the ether here? We need to be yeah. aware of yeah, there's there's one thing I, I wanted to prompt a, a nice message from from Angela in the chat that's getting some thumbs up from others. Uh, I'll just summarize it for you, Diane, because I want to get your reaction to it. Um, noting that you know generative AI has a lot of powerful things it can do in HR, um, and, you know, amplifying previous people analytics and so on. Um, but a lot of the use cases Angela has seen, and we've seen this as well, is doing things like using it to draft job descriptions. Uh, and that's great. It can be an efficiency boost uh, for the recruiting team and, and for hiring managers, but it can also produce a lot of 
similarity and sort of generic job descriptions out there. Um, and, 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 and thereby, as Angela says, dampen your EVP, dampen your, your, your culture voice that you want to have to better differentiate you from other employers. Um, so what yeah. are your thoughts on that? Um, the, the, the fact that it, overuse of generative AI might make everyone sort of the same. <laughs> yeah. So Angela, good for you for spotting that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it enables people also to to know that they got it, you know, it was generated by Gen AI, right? So it's another like, oh, they don't really care too much about this. Um, and it reminds me of um, when Southwest Airlines first started to have like really um, individualistic uh, flight attendants, right? And people were like, whoo, you know, that's great. <laughs> They're finally cracking jokes, you know, and, and people like it, it's refreshing. And, uh, and it, it's their character. They put their character into um, the script that they, they gave their employees, which was be yourself, right? Um, and, and I think people really value that. So I, I agree, I think that's really good. Look, I think that's, we're in early stages of how companies are using uh, Gen AI. The way I think about it um, is there are really uh, four areas, you know, that are uh, really being affected. One we've just talked about, which is it can give you an X-ray of your culture and your and your skills, right? And that's incredibly helpful um, as an HR function. The second one, which is where Angela you're talking about, is where it can be a co-pilot to somebody who's who's um, you know got a job and wants the some of the job to be done for them. And it doesn't stop that person from, you know, making changes, right? They shouldn't just, you know, out it goes because it, as you say, it loses their individuality, but it also may have mistakes. And we've heard a lot about hallucinations, which is just another way for another word for saying screwing up. Um, and, uh, and so you do need to, uh, you know, have some personal touch there. The thing that I thought was really interesting in this space is the BCG study that was done um, done on BCG consultants by Harvard and MIT uh, uh, professors, and they did a very solid study of 700 or so consultants, and they looked at um, you know the normal day to day of a consultant's work, which involves analysis but also creativity, right? Um, and what they found was that it upped the productivity, um, not just analysis, but also, uh, or research, but also innovation of these consultants um, quite considerably. But the thing that really was interesting was it upped the productivity of, of the low performers more than the high performers. The low performers, in terms of the volume and quality of their work, which was measured by you know, an individual um, against where they had been before they used AI, right? Uh, so it was sort of how did they improve? They'd had a, you know, had pre-experiment um, uh, exercise to do, and then they did it with AI. Um, for the low performers, it went up 43%. And for the high performers, their productivity and quality went up 17%. Okay. So, you know, so <laughs> that really, you know, kind of opens the aperture to say, all right. So it's really it's really having a bigger effect on low performers. There's actually narrowing the gap between low and high performers. Well, should we carry on having performance based pay then? I mean, these are the kinds of questions we should be asking in, in HR. Right. Um, the other thing that I think is something we need to watch out for is you know, it's very easy to delegate tasks, just like writing a job description to your Gen AI friend. Um, However, it's taking away the kind of work 
that we all did when we were juniors, right? Um, that's how we learned our craft. And I worry that we need to be thinking through what a junior career track looks like um, when, you know, the senior people might no longer be asking them to do some of this kind of work, um, but will instead find it easier, faster um, to, to ask their Gen AI um, uh, tool to do. And so I do think that's something we need to be thinking about in, in HR. And um, it's, um, it's a little troublesome. It's a little troublesome, I think. Um, the, um, the other area we've talked about is automation. And I think we're all seeing that and the upskilling opportunity that's there. Um, and I think HR has a role to play around how we do that so that people feel involved, feel a level of ownership for the new work design but the other thing is HR has never really been strong in work design and we're going to need to get a whole lot better um, as we integrate AI and gen AI into work. Um, and the flow of information is really important um, to understand. And, and, and that, of course, all lies behind the job description. So it goes back to fundamental skills in HR that that we need to focus on. The last area, um, the fourth area that I see it really making a difference is, is the employee experience and the manager experience. And I mentioned, you know, the, the experience that we, we were able to create at IBM, but, you know, to be able to create a wow experience um, and uh, doing stuff for people is, is really, really important. Um, and it has to be things that matter to that, right? Um, one of the first things we used AI for in IBM which really lessened the manager's workload was expense reimbursement. Um, I mean, sorry, expense approvals. And, um, you know, it was a real pain. Every time one of your employees went to a trip, you know, you had to go and uh, and, and approve every one of their expenses. And, and if you had a lot of those employees who were traveling, that was a lot of work. And you probably didn't spend enough time on it to make sure everything was a-okay. So we actually trained uh, our system to look for fraud and in, in pattern finding. And, um, and so we said to our managers back in 2013, we said, from now on, you no longer have to approve an expense. It'll only come back to you if the system finds that there's um, an aberration of some kind. And they couldn't believe it. I mean, suddenly this come off their, you know, come off their plates. And, um, and they were, you know, they were just so happy about it, right? Um, and it worked for us. It really did work for us. It found evidence, much more evidence, actually, than we'd ever had before. Um, so, you know, it was um, it was quite helpful and it would come back and suggest other, you know, other remediation approaches as well. Just going back to the skills piece for a moment, because yeah. um, this is, I would venture to guess if we polled this audience here that at least half would say, yeah, we're doing something around being a more skills-based organization going forward. And can you give advice to the people on this call, whether they're a smaller organization or a larger organization? Um, what are some talent practices or, you know, cultural components? If you're moving to being a skills-based organization, what are some key lessons you've learned that they should incorporate or build off? Yeah. So um, I think the key is you have all your management systems at your disposal and use them all. Right. Um, and so, you know, so first of all, recognition. Right. Um, uh, we uh, got a lot out of having um, digital badges. And so people would put them on LinkedIn. You'll you probably see them all the time when people have a digital badge. And, and it's um, it's a form of recognition that 
gives you social status in some way, you know, um, people recognize you for it. They congratulate you. Kind of fun. Right. So, so that, that I think has been tremendously helpful. Um, the second one is, um, is a compensation, as I mentioned, you know, to make sure that if you've improved your skills is recognized in some way in your compensation, if it's a skill that the company values, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's important. The third one is um, managers, right? So we actually rewarded managers if the, the um, skills, the skills of their unit had improved year to year. Um, and we looked at the areas of skills that were critical to the business and said, you know, have they improved or not? Um, and, uh, and by the way, we also had one back to your point, Kevin, of, um, movement within and outside. So have right. you moved your employees on to better opportunities outside your, your organization? So people weren't just like holding people they trained. Um, so we looked at both, but, you know, so that was important. Um, and, um, and so, you know, obviously internal movement, we had a opportunity marketplace and that was all based on skills, not, not just based on experience or credentials. Um, we changed, you know, as you probably know, we changed our, 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 um, job requisitions and they no longer use degrees for hiring. Um, because what we were really looking for were skills and we knew we could build those skills. Um, if, if people exhibited the, the right characteristics. So, He's, you know, it's every everything in your quiver, you know, it's all there, you can all make it happen. And of course, it has to start from the top, right? Um, and so role modeling from the top, I mean, there's nothing better than having, you know, a town hall with your people to say, oh, my God, that, you know, last module was so gruesome, I didn't think I'd pass, you know, or I tried it three times, and then I finally passed. And they go, oh, you've been doing that, too, you know, so it's important that you share your experiences when you're training, because we all have to train and uh, the CEO down, right? And um, and so all of us at a senior level, we all talked about the training and what we were doing when we had town halls or met with employees. I was just writing something. Um, uh, we just did a big study with Upskill America on upskilling frontline workers. And one of the things that I was writing and, and part of this report is, you know, one of the key traits we've always seen in high performance organizations is a culture of continuous learning. But one of the foremost things of a culture of a continuous learning is really three-way accountability for learning. And one is, you know, where the leader is really demonstrating learning's importance. They're a leader of, you know, they're they're teaching others. They're they're doing exactly what you're doing. They're learning themselves and coming back and sharing frustrations or how it's benefited them. That's a, I, I just wanted to reference that. I think that's so important, Diane. Hey, Diane, do you feel, I just wonder this, and then just wanted to get your sense if you think to the future here, especially for HR. You know, one of the questions I saw come up in chat, and I hear this often, is, you know, we're not good as an organization at anticipating skills that we're going to need going forward. Is there, was there anything that you did at IBM or that you've seen others do that you would recommend, especially for a company that may not have all kinds of resources as to what's effective to try to anticipate that better? You, for the company or for HR? For the, well, you know what? Let's, Shoot, let's let's see for the company here more broadly for the company. 
Yeah. So for the company, it starts with the business strategy, right? And to be able to break down the business strategy into what, well, okay, so what skills are we going to need and which ones are we going to need less of, right? Um, in, most companies are constantly changing their portfolio and they're changing the way they work. And um, and so it is important to be on top of that and to be able to do that translation. And that was a very rigorous process we went through at least once a year. Um, and then we were able to share with employees, here are the skills we're going to less, need less of, here are the skills we're going to need more of. Um, and we also looked at the market and said, oh, by the way, this is what's going on in the market. So people who were in an area where we need less of, but the market was strong, that was a good indicator that you might want to, you know, find another job before before we um, decide that we had need fewer of those jobs. And then uh, unless they wanted to rescale and we showed them where there were adjacencies where they could rescale or upskill into um, the areas where there would be high demand. So, you know, got to be transparent about all that. But but yeah, it was it was a very, very important exercise. And um, did we always get it right? Probably not. But directionally, it was good and it enabled us to coach people, give them, you know, it, of course, we had a great AI-based learning system, so they were able to see, hey, your skill is, you know, is adjacent to this high-demand skill. Do you wanna, you wanna start that, um, that, that course? And so, you know, so they were constantly aware of, um, you know, how they could, how they could get into a better place with their skills. But the HR perspective, yeah, you know, no, yeah, yeah, I think this is a very interesting time for HR. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I saw somebody's note in the chat there about, you know, HR are monkeys and anyone can do our job. I think it's really putting a premium on what HR has always been good at, which is EQ. Um, the one thing that we found with Gen AI, and we found this in, the, in the, the study that I just remarked on that was done by Harvard and MIT. And if you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. It's called The Jagged Edge. Um, and what they found was they, one of the exercises was, you know, to um, make a recommendation to a CEO um, uh, based on, you know, a lot of data around um, this particular um, product and market. Um, and But there were interview notes and then there was the data, right? And so Gen AI came back with the wrong recommendation. Why? Because it couldn't tease out the subtlety that was in the interviews, um, which actually um, which actually contradicted some of the data. But a person could see that if they had the right EQ to pick up the subtlety. Um, yep. So it's that skill that is really at a premium, not just for HR, but really everywhere. Um, and, and the other thing is that, you know, you could have as your co-pilot, um, somebody who, you know, is an AI as opposed to a robot, as opposed to a person, but you don't get that level of um, ability to share your thinking and to get, um, it's that companionship, right? Of, you know, I think you're on the right, on the right road there, but here, you know, take courage and go do it, right? That's the kind of thing maybe um, an HR person would say. So, so I think it's that EQ part that is going to matter much more going into the future. And the question that we've got to get really good at as HR people is how do you screen for that? You know, um, how do you how do you select for it? And um, and if people aren't that strong in it, how do you develop it? And that I think is going to become more and more important. I also mentioned other areas like work and job design, which is critical as we start to rethink how work gets done. Um, and uh, and then, you know, I think the 
ability to work with the analytics is important. Um, there's no question as I, the other areas that uh, that AI can do for us require somebody to interpret it and and to turn it into policy and to turn it into um, feedback and that kind of thing. Just knowing what time it is right now, I'm going to hold back from any other questions, Diane, because this could go on forever. But again, it teases up why you need to be in Scottsdale at the end of March. But Tom, I'm going to turn things back to you. And I, I just want to thank you, Diane, for this conversation. It's been fascinating. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.